is ChaosCast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, or short Chaos Project, to wherever you'd like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. On the panel today, we have Sean Goggins. Hi, I'm Sean Goggins. I'm a member of the Chaos Board, been with the project since the inception, and I maintain a software project called Augur inside of Chaos. I'm also a computer science professor at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. Thanks, Sean. And myself, Georg Link. Hi, everyone. Good to be back with you. My name is Georg Link. My pronouns are he, him, his. Also co-founded Chaos. I'm on the board. And I really enjoy these podcasts. And today we have a special guest, Matt Van Italy. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for having me, Sean and Georg. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited yeah. to have you here. It's an honor. Yes. So where are you from? How did you find chaos? What brought you here? Sure. I grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York, a small town north of New York City where IBM has a big presence. My parents were both IBMers. I live now in Baltimore, Maryland, near Washington, D.C., and I came to chaos through my work at SEMA. I'm the founder and CEO of a software company focused on code quality. And we have two areas of interest that relate to the work that chaos is doing. One is an analytics tool to understand open source code and other dimensions of the health of a code base. So very passionate about the topic broadly in mergers and acquisitions contexts. And our second tool helps developers build a portfolio of their work, which is particularly relevant so far for new engineers and engineers contributing to open source. Those are two really exciting areas of interest, the new contributors, and that's related to the notion of building community that you mentioned. Working in the risk working group a lot myself, I think code quality is one of those spaces where when we get to those metrics, we often encounter that really all the tools are A, language specific and B, proprietary. So assessing code quality in the chaos project, I think it's a mountain that we have not yet been able to figure out how to climb. And I'm certainly really curious what your thoughts are on these various paradoxes and complexities when evaluating code quality in open source. First off, let me talk a little bit about our taxonomy for how we think about understanding a code base. And we use code base intentionally because, of course, it's much more than the code itself. It's also about the people involved, for example. So when we're thinking about code base quality, it includes the team helping, the process by which contributors are contributing, the use of open source code in that project. So whether or not it's an open source project itself, the security of the code, such as the presence of hard-coded passwords and the like. And the fifth part of the framework is code quality. 
So of course, there are many submetrics within that, including line level warnings, linters, the presence or absence of unit tests. And then for object-oriented code, for example, the amount of polymorphic methods, fun paper about from IEEE about polymorphic methods and understanding architectural quality, you want to go down that hole. So within that, so one question, Sean, you asked about was language specificity. Of course, you are correct, especially within a fifth component of code quality. Almost all of those measures are specific to a language. I say almost. We consider the presence of unit testing to be a code quality measure, even though it's language agnostic. We're looking for the evidence of testing. I wrote in Visual Basic, sorry, no <laughs> unit test. You can't pass that off on a decent manager. <laughs> <laughs> but then for so much of it, it is about language specific warnings and concerns. And what I would say for an open source community who wanted to investigate the code quality in particular, the code quality module, probably piecing together relevant linters is a great place to start. Frankly, not just as an assessment, but as part of the integration process, the development process more broadly. Has, has anyone cataloged the available linters? Like I've done linting in certain languages because the linter is there and I don't have to think about it. If I wanted to, for example, lint Python, honestly, I should know if you can do that. I assume you can. Is there a place I can go? I've got a language. I want to do linting. Is there a resource for like a clearinghouse of these kinds of things by chance? That is a great question. I don't know the answer, but I will have an answer and, and tweet it uh, <laughs> by the time that we're, this is live. Awesome. I just, um, my wish list. So SEMA's tool on line level warnings pulled together 11 different linters covering about 45 different languages. So some of the linters are multi-language, which makes it easier. And we are big fans of Sonar Source, which is also close to language agnostic for trying to be comprehensive. But I will look for a list. And so that's on the code quality side. So one of these five modules on security and intellectual property risk, there are other open source projects that are useful. Scan code, we're huge fans of. They've done tremendous work, as an example, on the intellectual property side. It takes some work, and there's a reason that there are tools out there who are putting these together for ongoing use. That's actually not what SEMA does, so I can give kudos to other folks who are building this. But it's certainly possible for a team that is interested in applying open source tooling on code quality to put together a best-of-breed set of tools based on open source. When you talked about sonar source, the language agnosticism, that's obviously very appealing. And SEMA's coverage of 45 languages, I think most open source today could probably fit into some bucket of 45 languages. And I'm curious, when you talk about a language agnostic code quality analysis tool, on principle, how does that work? What are the limitations of language agnosticism and what are the, the benefits, I think, are pretty transparent. One tool, all the languages. What are some constraints that you've discovered in your work? For sure. Let me be a little bit more specific about how our tool works because I know it so well. Of those five modules, some of them are purely language agnostic. An example is process quality. So process quality includes measures like the consistency of files per commit per individual or per team or per project. 
It also includes references back to the ticket management system, unless they're otherwise automated. So for example, if a project is using Jira, the degree to which Jira ticket numbers are included as comments is a sign of health for us. Of course, as you said, the benefit of language agnostic metrics are that they're comparable across all languages. We think it would be perfectly fine to start with language agnostic metrics, especially if you're a project that has a lot of languages as a starting point for comparison. But the real juicy stuff, the real meat of code quality, of security, of team contributions, you do have to get to language specificity. So if I were giving advice to an open source project, I would say start with language specific code quality measures for your major language or languages. And then you can add on to it secondary languages, as well as the language agnostic individual modules. That makes a lot of sense. It sounds like, for example, if there are some common poor coding practices that one sees in developers, perhaps the use of Flintstone characters as variable names, that's the kind of thing a general code quality assessor could catch. But when it comes to specific languages like Python or Go, I think there are practices that are so specific to those languages in terms of optimizations and best practices that generalizing that to a single tool would be a fool's errand. Well said. I have another question. You had mentioned how commits reference the issues that inspired them, so to say. So to look at the process, how deep have you gone into that process analysis? Have you been able to go back and say, okay, we have an issue is being opened, is being commented on, then there's commits, it's a review process. How detailed do you get in looking at the process? Those are very good questions. And the answer is SEMA has answered only a few of them. I'll take one as an example. In the last 90 days, the percentage of code comments that include a JIRA ticket number or another system's ticket number. And we see what that percentage is repository by repository and application by application. Vast majority of our usage is in mergers and acquisitions, in particular, representing a potential buyer of a code base of an organization. And so that measure first shows the absolute level of tying the version control system data to the project management data from Jira and product management data from Jira. It also shows the variation, which if you're thinking about a large organization can help you understand how consistent are the practices across. Now there's a great deal of nuance, even in a simple metric like this. For example, if there is a 0% use of ticket numbers in the code comments, that could be due to the team not taking seriously tying back the stories, but it could also be due to an automated approach where it's already built in so you don't have to include it. From decades of working with metrics, one of my core philosophies and one of SEMA's core philosophies is data starts the conversation. It doesn't end it. And so whenever we see 0%, the first question is, might you already have an automated system in place? And that's just a tiny example, but code is a craft first and fundamentally is a craft. Metrics are only going to get you so far. And then you have to get to the conversation between expert professionals to understand what's going on in a code base, private, open source, or otherwise. 
There is no magic one correct way. There is an art to this that cannot be quantified or turned into an algorithm to uncover what's best in all the cases. Part of what I do as a CEO is explain code quality to non-technical executives, especially when they're about to spend billions of dollars buying a company that has software assets, whether it's a software company or really anybody in 2022 is at least a little bit of software company, any organization. How long does it take to explain to executives oh, code quality measurement? <laughs> well, I think a big part of it is I take both sides. A non-technical executives need to be able to listen, but technologists need to be able to put it in terms that non-technologists can understand. I personally am a big fan of traffic lights. You don't have to know about code to know that if the refactoring risk, which is a subset of code quality is red, red means bad. And so uh, for people who want to be able to communicate about code quality, it behooves them. They have a requirement to be understood to their audience. I actually think the chaos metrics speak to that, at least in another way, that if you want to communicate, it's not just what you think, it's whether or not the audience can understand you. And so for non-technical audiences, we certainly convert some things into dollars and cents. We convert things into red, yellow, green, but even some stories in the sales context, which most non-technical executives are comfortable with, making more sales calls, an activity metric about sales is almost always good. And maybe you shouldn't be calling on North Korea. But other than that, it's always <laughs> always good. Yeah. I technically can't. <laughs> technically can't, exactly. And for other countries, yeah. <laughs> more sales is good. So that's the outcome. I'm a big fan of the logic model framework. So more sales is good. In the code context, are more lines of code good? Who knows? Maybe yes, maybe no. In many cases, reducing code is actually a step forward. Usually if not. You, if you're building rather than buying, maybe that's not the right decision because you should be using it. And so that story is actually pretty Pretty understandable. Non-technical executives start not in their heads. And then when you have metrics based on some of that nuance, complete with follow-up questions, you hear the story. We were tired at it of trying to bridge the gap between tech and non-tech. That is, of course, a challenge in this world. And I know you mentioned earlier that security is often a concern in addition to intellectual property and, and that kind of thing. And one of the challenges in the risk working group on chaos that Another one we've run across is that identifying the various declared recognized risks is a step. And then when you're using an open source project, the next step is, well, when does that project recognize that they have exposure to that risk? And then when do the projects inside my company recognize that they're importing the projects that are importing the projects? that have that risk. So there's sort of a turtles all the way down kind of a problem. And I'm curious how you explain or frame that in the context of the work that you're doing. Great question. Totally agree with the premise of the point. We've looked at hundreds of billions of lines of code, evaluated a trillion dollars worth of companies measured by their financial value, and 100% of those companies have intellectual property risk, like copyleft, and security risk, like hard-coded passwords, and the intersection of the two. Literally 100%, no matter how good their tooling is, how good their OSPO is. Hard-coded passwords kind of shocks me. 
writing code is really hard. And we take shortcuts that we're pretty sure we're going to come back to. It is not the case that 100% have hard-coded passwords, to be clear, but 100% have at least some cross-site scripting, hard-coded keys. So of the thousands of potential security warnings, 100% have at least some, and most have many. Most organizations from the smallest early invest pre-seed or series A companies to mega organizations have security issues in their code. And so the first premise, both directly There's three levels of the turtle in this case, directly from the code they've written, secondarily from open source code that they have copied in instead of using a package manager, and then third from the open source code that they're using from a package manager. Those are all sources of risk. That's amazing. If I can put myself in the, I'm an old man way back machine. Back in Y2K, I made a living flying around the country, performance tuning Oracle databases for PeopleSoft implementations. And not 100%, but probably in the high 90s of every Oracle implementation I looked at had the default password for a high power admin user, Scott, whose password was Tiger, unchanged, so that I could get into their database with really no effort whatsoever. I often didn't even have to ask them for an admin user because they'd never changed the default. That made your life easy. (laughs) Well, yeah, I fixed that for them. That was one of my services. The amazing question, of course, is who is Scott and why did he love Tiger so much? Scott is Larry Ellison's son. Amazing. Amazing. I think Tiger was his nickname if my way back machine memory is not failing me. That's incredible. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the sustained community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter. So if we go back to the M&A use case on security risk and intellectual property risk, and again, those are two of those five modules, it is exceptionally common for transactions to go through for purchases of companies or investment in companies to go through with significant security risk and significant intellectual property risk. And those areas get added to what I would call the value creation effort, which is to say after the sale or after the transaction, it becomes work afterwards to clean it up. And so it is pretty rare that a deal does not go through because of security or intellectual property risk, which you might expect if everybody because has it. No deals would go through is what it sounds like. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And back to the code is craft. And if code's a craft, what does that mean? It means that the creators matter a ton because there's so much institutional knowledge in their heads about how things fit together and the meaning of it, right? Crafts people create meaning that is incredibly hard to transfer. The biggest driver by far of a deal not being successful is that the team who created the code has left. It's the people risk, which near and dear to my heart because of course all these philosophical points, but it's really true. You think about trying to 
understand a code base, no matter how good the documentation, if the creators or heavy users aren't around, is the number one reason that software deals do not go through. That makes a lot of sense to me. I lived through something like that with no money involved during the pandemic when my students who helped create Augur graduated after not having been together in a room together for eight months. And the team that took over for them, I didn't get to be in a room with almost a year. And during 20, if you look at Augur's commit count during 2021, I am the Uber committer. I had to learn all the things I didn't yet know. We could have easily just dropped it honestly, at that point. And it was only the commitment of the chaos community that helped it get through that bridge. But you're right. I've seen it time and time again, where if you lose a key developer, everything is broken. So Matt, when you think about all the things that you already have in place, I'm sure you think about what's the next step. How do you get even better? Is there something that you're just really itching to get to and really want to do? And and then the second part to that question is, is that something the chaos community could help with? I can't say that the chaos community wants code scanning, wants the ability to evaluate code quality in some manner, you know, what form that might take working in an open source environment and in, in partnership with a company. We don't have a path right now. I don't think we have a good, robust, multi-language solution that we're looking at. I think that's very piecemeal and, and group by group. Yeah. So feel free to just wave the magic wand and <laughs> we'll make it happen. I don't know. Maybe not. But what's the wish? But thinking about it for a few moments, I would say there's two areas. One area is continuing to go down the turtles on top of turtles, as Sean said, to understand the risks whether they're license related or security or code quality related of all of the licenses of code being used. So to take the modules and further expand their reach into code being used by the original code, that is definitely on our mind. And some parts of it are coming out soon on the roadmap and also other parts ahead. So we'll definitely have to continue that conversation. But the second area while very much about code quality and the craft of coding is tackling this in a second direction that also very excited about. Of all of the possible folks who might appreciate this metaphor, I'm going to use it here and you'll be the judge of whether or not it flies. I'm excited to share this mental model. So think about coding like a craft. Let's take pottery. A tool like SEMA's is really good at measuring the objective quality of that code at a point in time. And I would think about it like a guild of potters. So a group of potters who are working together. If they brought all of their pots to a show, to an annual show and showed off their work, you could imagine, take some effort, but you could imagine an automated tool to help understand the state and the health of that guild through automation. You might count the number of pots. You might count the number of pots created by potters who are in the room. That's back to the analogy of who's left. You might measure how consistent the pots are to each other, either within 
uh, one potter's set or multiple potters. You might measure how the pots have gotten better over time, perhaps that the new potters are getting better. So we think both in that analogy, it's, you know, it's a fake one. There's not tooling for pottery that we know of, but that objective measures, a computer looking at it, are really useful and relevant in these moments of evaluation. We could evaluate the success of the potters in achieving some core basic level of potterizing or whatever they call it, I think is what you're saying. Exactly right. Exactly right. But when you take those kinds of metrics and you bring them to the minute by minute work of being a potter or coding, we think it really loses a lot of value very quickly. And again, with this pottery analogy, imagine that there was a camera looking over your shoulder as you were on a potter's wheel and not a potter's, or I might be getting the terminology wrong, but I saw a ghost. So I think they had that wheel. If you gave a potter a camera and had a machine learning model looking over your shoulder and beeping, if your wheel went too fast or too slow or the thickness of an individual pot was too thin or too thick, the potter would stand up and rip out that camera and stomp it on the ground. It <laughs> does what I was thinking. Yeah, right. It doesn't meet the ethos of the craft. It is not how it works. It's just not how the craft works. And I think even tools like ours. And so Seamus tool is not an ongoing tool for ongoing monitoring. We're again, big fans of Sonar Cube because it has a particular way, but those kind of metrics are not appropriate or not as appropriate for day-to-day -day use. So then what's the alternative? Obviously, you've heard me say code is a craft. Well, what are some elements of craft? A most important measure of quality is what an expert thinks. And so it is the subjective rather than objective wisdom coming from another coder. We, of course, have a process that already exists. Those are code reviews where tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of times a day, experts are reviewing juniors, juniors are reviewing each other, pairs and such. And so we think that moment of making code reviews better, more repeatable and analyzable, that is our second product. And since we're all data nerds here, structuring that data sufficiently that you can understand and use it later. So it still becomes quantitative, but quantitative based on subjective wisdom, not objective computer metrics. Is there a mechanism or process that's part of that, which reduces the amount of labor that might be required for code review. And I ask that because the shortage of folks who are available to code on earth right now remains a challenge for the open source and commercial software industries. Short answer is yes. So I'll talk a little bit about ours. Our second tool is a Chrome extension that sits on top of the, for now, GitHub that makes it easier and faster to write code reviews. It works by putting best practices available while you're typing. So imagine Stack Overflow, but only the answers and available for you to pull from as you're doing your code review. And then it suggests auto-structuring so that you can quickly get to the point that's quickly understandable and then have the reader understand it and then move on to the next. And the combination of those two takes some time out of the process while also bringing in more rigor and more context. I would say it also sounds like it removes some of the syntactical, redundant, less interesting labor that software developers perform and lets them focus their energies on the more creative, interesting things that they got into it for as well. So I see a, I see a double plus to 
what you're describing. I love libraries. And what I love about libraries is going to read books that were already written before I have to go think of something new. So I don't like reinventing the wheel. I would rather start with bodies of knowledge, et cetera. And so the, the tool certainly reflects that point of view. Don't do code reviews of things. Don't spend time on code reviews that are easily copy and pasteable in, easily automatable, et cetera. So we'll put these in the notes, but it sounds like SEMA and scan code might be the two places that you would turn us to begin exploring this after listening to the podcast. Or did I miss one? Sure. Sonar, I would certainly add to that. Sonar. Thank you. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. I would say everyone listening, please, please make sure you have good intellectual property risk management. Scan code is a great, great place to start. Folks in OSPOs, it's super hard to organize all the engineering efforts. There's no ill will, but they are putting code in that is not in the package manager. So find a way and scan code is a great way to do it, to look for intellectual property risk, even if it's not in a package manager. But yes, so definitely scan code, definitely Sonar for linting. And of course, we like the SEMA code review product as a way to help make code reviews more meaningful and more useful. So this is really awesome. Thank you, Matt. For anyone listening who would maybe like to connect with you or follow up on your work, how would they be able to reach you? Simplest way is go to semasoftware.com, S-E-M-A, software.com. We're named for a famous translator because the work of code quality is not doing the core work. The core work is creating just like the core work of translating. Translating isn't the core work either. It's the authorship is the core work. So we're trying to pay homage to that. Literally any of the buttons there, whether it's the intercom button or contact us, we're joining the wait list. We'll also find me. I would be thrilled to talk to you and answer any questions you have. Awesome. And this brings us to the last segment of this podcast where we do value ads and share something that has brought value, joy, or meaning to our life recently. And I just moved to a new house a little over a month ago and finally I'm box free. So... Just reaching that stage of, okay, I moved in. That to me is a big relief. And now things are calming down as I'm settling in. I'll go next. I'm going to cheat and do two. I have incredible appreciation for Kunal and Eddie, two extraordinary open source community leaders who are among the most welcoming and most supportive people I've ever met in any context, much less an open source. And it is so inspiring to me to watch how much they have done to serve newcomers to open source, newcomers to coding. They are a daily inspiration for me. That's awesome. Please include links to those resources in the show notes. You can send those to Georg. I'd like to cheat as well. My main a value add is after two years of the pandemic and having the kids around, I'm finally back on my bicycle and I have a Trek 520, which is an on-road, but cross-country kind of bike. And I recommend Schwalbe tires. And the reason is that they're made with Kevlar. And one of the things that I think frustrates bicyclists who just are trying to get started is all the flats that you end up with, especially if you're tooling around the city. 
And I've had these particular Schwalbies for a year. I've had Schwalbies for about eight years. And this is my like ninth pair or something because I ride a lot of miles and, and just wear them out. But I've never had a flat on my Schwalbies. And it makes bicycling far more joyful than when I'm getting a flat all the time. So I recommend that. I'd also like to just take a minute to recommend and thank Google and Red Hat and VMware for all of the support that they've provided the Chaos Project over the years and the things that they've done directly and indirectly to really help us understand what the community needs. And there's dozens, if not a hundred other companies that do the same. Baturgia, for example. Chaos is a community, but it's a community that really relies like a lot of corporatized open source on the engagement of these companies. And so I'd like to thank them and recommend that they buy each of their employees a Trek 520 with Schwalbe tires. (laughs) (laughs) And this brings us to the end. And this is where I'd like to say thank you. So thank you, Matt, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking with you. It was a blast for me as well. Likewise. And thank you, Sean, for being a panelist today. My pleasure. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community.